Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? For today's Tech Stuff tidbits, that's the new thing I'm doing on Wednesdays where I, I do a shorter topic, I thought I would talk a little bit about content farms and clickbait. And I think of these as kind of like cousins. So we'll start with the concept of content farms. Now, to understand how content farms became a thing, it's necessary to talk about web advertising and search engines, because those are the two components that made content farms a viable business idea. So here's the super short version of web advertising. Obviously, it involves making a deal with some sort of advertising entity where that entity will give you money in exchange for allowing the entity to put up advertising on your site in some way. Now, usually that money is actually contingent upon some other criteria, not just that you allow them to take up landscape, uh, because that's just not good enough. If no one ever goes to your webpage, then the ad is doing nothing. It's, it's like if you put a billboard up in the middle of the Sahara Desert where nobody goes. So web advertising quickly adopted a few different models, uh, and I'll give a few examples. So one was just based on page views. So the advertiser would get data about how many people had visited that web page in a given amount of time. And they might also get a little more data, such as, you know, how much time the average person spent on the page. And generally speaking, the more people who visit and the longer that they stay on a page, the more valuable the page is uh, and the more likely they are obviously to encounter or even perhaps act upon advertising. So you've got a lot of different concepts wrapped up in here. You would typically have a, uh, uh, you know, a per thousand deal for views. So you might say like, okay, well, we'll pay you $5 per thousand views this web page gets, because that means 1000 times people saw our ad. You also had uh, the concept of how much you could demand for those thousand views, right? If people, you know, if you could show that people come to your page and they spend 20 minutes on it, that would be phenomenal. That would be an incredibly long time for someone to spend on a web page that's not, say, a social network platform or something like YouTube. Uh, then you could demand higher prices for those thousand views. Whereas if people, you know, would come to your page and then almost immediately bounce, you would probably only be able to get a small amount per thousand views. So all of that factors in, right? And of course, there are other advertising models as well, uh, such as ones that pay out not on page views, but on user actions, such as clicking through the ad to go to a related product or service page, or in some cases, actually making a purchase following such uh, an action. So like, not only did they click through the ad, they bought something, and that's where the uh, revenue comes from for the, the person who's allowing the ad to be on their page. So that forms the basis of making revenue on the web uh, at that basic level. There are obviously many other ways to do it. But generally speaking, the web advertisement side is the revenue side. The search engine bit, that's the discovery side. Uh, that's the opportunity. That's how you get the people 
to your stuff. Uh, and if we get meta and we start looking at web traffic, we can actually start to see what people are looking for. And if you know what folks are looking for, then you can try and meet that need. So there are a lot of web analytics out there where you can actually find things like how many people searched for a certain term. Like there's Google Trends, right? Where you can look and see what people are looking for. And if a lot of people are looking for something and there aren't a lot of great options to go to to see that something, there's an opportunity there. Now, this is interesting because, you know, I'm. you can call me a content creator. I, I actually don't like that term. I know a lot of people use it, but it seems so like uh, robotic to me. Like there's no there's no humanity in the in the terms content creator as far as I can tell. But maybe I'm just projecting too much. Anyway, if you think of someone who creates stuff on the web, uh, they might come at that from one of many different ways. Maybe they they're doing it because they have a true passion for whatever it is they do. And they just follow that passion, and that's why they're creating the thing they create. Uh, that, to me, feels really you know, pure and lovely, and I, I love seeing those kinds of people on the web, and I, I love seeing them flourish. There are others who they want to create. They don't have a specific passion they want to follow, but they want to create because they think, think that's the way they want to make a living. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is lesser than... Uh, so they're not necessarily following their passion for any particular topic. Rather, they are looking to see what topics are people interested in, and then they go out to cover those topics in order to meet that need. Uh, like They think, well, why can't I be the person to create this thing that people want to see? And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just a different method of going about it. And I also don't know I don't know. I consider myself more of the first category than the second category. I don't know how sustainable that is over the long run, right? I don't know if you would burn out faster if you were just constantly trying to meet the the needs of your identified audience. Anyway, this would mean that sites would, could do things like uh, look around at analytics and see that maybe people are looking for information about how to, I don't know, hook up a tow hitch to a truck. I'm not giving that example for any specific reason, but if you ask me about it in person, I'll tell you the specific reason. Anyway, you then decide you're going to make a dash for creating an online resource that at least claims to show how to hook up a tow hitch to a truck. And you know that since people are searching for it, they're bound to find yours because you already saw that there's actually a lack of resources out there. Now, remember, this is like, you know, more than a decade ago at this point. But creating the piece not isn't necessarily enough on its own. Like, you know, just because you wrote something doesn't mean it's going to rank well. So you also need to make sure that that piece shows up pretty high up in search results. So you practice something called search engine optimization, or SEO. And you use a bunch of different strategies to give your page a good chance to rank high on search results on engines like Google. In fact, you would probably only focus on Google because so much search traffic goes through the Google engine. If the majority of the people are using Google to search stuff, then it just makes sense to focus your efforts there. You wouldn't want to go and focus on smaller search engines because even if you did well, you'd still only be getting a fraction of the traffic that Google could send you. So you focus on Google. Back in the day, Google was actually 
you know, easy to gamify, uh, easy being in quotation marks, uh, easier, I guess I should say. And, uh, and, you know, most folks don't ever bother to go beyond the first page of search results. In fact, a lot of people never bother to scroll down below what is called the fold. So if, you know, whatever you see on your, on your page, uh, when you first do a search result, anything below the bottom of the screen, that's called below the fold. It would require you to scroll down to see it. A lot of people don't even bother to do that. So you definitely want to be in those first couple of results. If you can get your article about tow hitches to rank up there, you're almost guaranteed to capture a ton of traffic from the people who are looking that information up. And through web advertisements on your page about tow hitches, you can generate revenue as more and more people come to the page. Now, that's just one little topic, obviously. You couldn't make a living off of that. But what if you could scale that operation up, like big time? Like what if you were to hire dozens of writers at a pretty low rate of pay. Uh, in fact, some content farms would outsource articles to writers in countries like the Philippines, where it wasn't uncommon for folks to make just a dollar an hour. Uh, one person said she averaged between five and $10 an hour writing articles and managed on average to have an output of about one article per hour. But then there are other content farms that would pay more by the word, and that could range like three to five cents a word. And that would be for the higher paid writers, uh, others who are entry level, they might be getting a little bit of like a, a penny and a fraction per word. So there is an incentive to generate a lot of words, right? Because that's how you're getting paid if that's the metric. Uh, so some would do a per article basis, some would do an hourly basis, some would do per word basis. In the United States, according to Simply Hired, uh, the average content writer makes around $34,000 per year today. Uh, now, keep in mind, we're also talking about an era where content farms are not nearly the thing they were a decade ago. Uh, $34,000 is a hair under the annual median personal income for folks in America. So it means you'd actually be below the median for uh, income. However, I should add that this is from, you know, again, a post-content farm perspective. Back in the content farm days, the content writer average was probably a little bit lower. All right, so let's say you can hire a bunch of writers for really low wages. So you have a, a fairly low overhead. And uh, you know maybe they make money on a per-article basis. Maybe part of their compensation is related to revenue generated by the article so that they get essentially residuals if the article is really popular. That did happen in the content farm days, at least in some content farms. It wasn't applicable to every writer for every content farm, but it did happen. So folks who you know managed to hit on something that really did well, they could actually potentially make money as sort of a long tail kind of revenue generator where over time they would get residual checks. Usually not a lot per article, but if you write a lot of articles and several of them are hits, it could be a nice little source of money. Well, the goal is to build out a very large operation with relatively low overhead, and you just churn out articles based upon web traffic patterns. So it's not that you're a website that has a focus, right? That would be the, the antithesis of a content farm. Like you wouldn't typically find a content farm about a specific topic. No, content farms would tackle anything and everything largely based upon analysis of web traffic. They would flood the internet with tons of articles about stuff 
where there was a perceived gap of information, which again represented an opportunity. The term content farm frequently implies that the actual content on the site in question is of inferior quality, that in an effort to minimize costs while maximizing effect, writers spew out hastily written pieces, perhaps poorly researched or even just plain wrong or useless, because the goal isn't to produce good work. The goal is just to fill those niches in search results in order to capture the traffic. This was all about pouncing on opportunities that opened up through search. And for the writers, particularly those who were paid on a per-article basis, the motivation was to write more assignments to make more money. Uh, It was a machine for generating substandard work. That's not to say that every piece written for a content farm was bad, or that the people writing for content farms were bad or sloppy writers. A lot of them are quite good. But rather, I mean to say the nature of the business put very little emphasis on quality and a whole lot more emphasis on quantity. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk a little bit more about content farms and then clickbait. One thing I didn't mention before the break is something else that content farms became notorious for, which was stealing content from other sites. I mean, what's cheaper than paying someone to write an article, taking someone else's article, stripping it of some details, and then putting it up on your site? In fact, on more than one occasion, I would come across one of my own articles that I had written for HowStuffWorks.com, and I would see that my name had been taken off the article, but it was definitely my article, like word for word, not even, you know, paraphrased, but literally just copy and pasted and would even include in many cases, illustrations that came out of our office. We had artists working in our office who would make illustrations and you would even see like how stuff works written on the, the, uh, illustrations in some cases, it was a, a blatant case of plagiarism. And that in itself was difficult to deal with because it was popping up all over the place. Like it was popping up faster than you could take action on it. Uh, Now, this whole content farm strategy worked for as long as ranking in search could be gamified. As long as you could reliably get into those top search results, then this was open season. Uh, Rushing to fill the voids would pay off with some sites ballooning to thousands or hundreds of thousands of articles. Uh, and dozens of new articles would launch every single day, all in an effort to dominate search. Like there was no, there was no even pretense that these were sites that were trying to get people to go to the site on their own and then just kind of browse around. Everything on the site was engineered to be something that would show up in search, and that's how they would get their traffic. Now, I want to also say this: when I worked for How Stuff Works. A lot of our traffic came in through search. Uh, It turned out that a lot of people were finding our articles through search. So we were benefiting from the the search stuff just like content farms were. We weren't operating like a content farm. Heck, I would write, when I started, I think I wrote one article every two weeks because I would have one full week to research and write a draft of the article, and I would turn it in on a Friday. And I would have the following week to revise that article while I would start a second article, like the next new one. Uh, And on the second Friday, 
that's when the article I'd been working on would go live on the site. So that's not a content farm. Like a content farm is churning out articles way faster with very little regard to the quality of the work. Uh, this was great in the short term for content farms that, you know, they were able to, to get this much traffic. Like the fact that they were able to gamify the system and to get a bunch of writers to create hundreds of articles in a short amount of time, it was a great way to make money. Uh, it wasn't great, but it could be good for the writers, depending upon you know which outlets they were working for and what their pay rates were for those art, uh, outlets. Uh, and it was not great for everybody else because it would mean that you know you'd be searching for something and you might land on a page that more likely than not isn't of very good quality for whatever it was that you were searching for. And it was really, really not great for Google because Google was having to deal with the fact that users were getting disenchanted after encountering so many garbage articles that were ranking in Google search. It was, it was making Google search appear to be unreliable because the destinations you were going to were pretty crappy. So, uh, in fact, I, I guess I can talk about this now, um, way back in the day when I was still a writer for howstuffworks.com, uh, there was a point where Google representatives actually reached out to me asking if how stuff works might produce articles in specific areas because the search engine needed to direct people to higher quality articles. So they actually handed me a list of topics that they said, we need, we need better ver you know, articles out there because the ones that people are finding are terrible. Well, the articles on howstuffworks.com were and are heavily researched. And the writing staff, like I said, they, you know, we mainly came from English degrees, right? <laughs> we had all studied English lit or, or something along those lines, you know, and we all had backgrounds in research and writing papers with citations and all that kind of fun stuff. So Google is trying to push back a bit against content farms and to touch base with more respected sites to provide higher quality articles that wouldn't be such a drag to land on when someone searched for those terms. Now, that was potentially an incredibly valuable thing for me to receive as someone who produces content. Uh, I mean, for a search engine to actually say, hey, just so you know, folks are really looking for articles about this stuff, but they're finding trash, that meant that there was this huge opportunity to write better stuff. However, I have to say a lot of the topics Google handed to us just weren't really how stuff works material. I don't mean they were like salacious or anything like that, just that they were a bit too niche and mundane and like there'd be no reason to write a How Stuff Works style article on most of those topics. So while it represented an opportunity, we didn't actually really uh, take advantage of it. Anyway, Google would later revise its search algorithm to really deal with this issue of junk articles more directly. Uh, this was more than a decade ago. Like, in my mind, this happened maybe five years ago, but it's because I have lost all concept of time. But no, it happened in 2011 when Google launched the Panda algorithm, actually named after one of the Google engineers. Uh, the purpose of the Panda algorithm was to promote high-quality sites over junk sites. So if you did a search and results were coming up, the search algorithm would now... Uh, promote the higher quality sites over the lower quality ones. They would rank higher in search. So if you look for an article about, I don't know, chicken salad, whichever site Google considered to be the most high quality would rank highest. 
sites Google identified as hosting thousands of low-quality articles would get punished by the algorithm, often totally site-wide. So even if that site hosted a few really good articles, and a lot of content farms had really good articles, even if it had really good articles, if the site was mostly filled up with junk articles, it was going to get dinged across the board. So this was a huge blow to content farms. Uh, Google also released a blog post about the algorithm explaining the criteria that they use to determine if a site merits the, the designation of high quality. And it was stuff like, if you went to the site and you read the article, would you feel like you could trust what the article had to say? Or would the content and presentation of the information make you distrust the article? It also looked into stuff like whether or not experts or highly qualified writers were contributing to the piece. A lot of content farms gave little to no information about the people who were actually writing the articles, so that would be a blow against them. Uh, if the site contained a lot of duplicate or overlapping article topics, where you know, you're just blasting maybe 100 articles about towing, uh, that could ding you pretty bad. Now, the Penguin algorithm would follow in 2012, and that algorithm aimed at sites that created uh, what were called unnatural backlinks. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that, except to say one of the factors that Google's search algorithm would take into account back in the day was how many links are aiming at a particular web page that pops up for a particular search query. So... Again, let's say the search query is chicken salad and the Google algorithm starts crawling the web and pulling all the different hits that relate to chicken salad. One of the things it would look at is say, how many other sites link to this page about chicken salad? If a lot of sites are linking to this page, then that seems to indicate that it's a good page, that it's it's good enough to convince other people, hey, I'm going to link to this because it's worthwhile. And thus, Google would draw the conclusion, or rather, the algorithm would draw the conclusion that this must be a better uh, result because a lot of people are linking to it. But you could gamify that. You could just create tons of backlinks to your individual pages. And by linking to everything, you would appear to boost this metric. And Google search would then say, oh, this must be a good article because look at how many links are aiming into it. Penguin was meant to fight against that. Penguin, as far as I know, was not named after a Google engineer like Panda was. And eventually, both Panda and Penguin were mostly made moot when Google launched Hummingbird. Now, Penguin and Panda were kind of like patching the search algorithm. Hummingbird was a total overhaul to Google's search algorithm. And this was also the era where you would hear about sites really taking a big hit because they had been so dependent upon search traffic. And when Google changed the way it handled search results, uh, even sites that were considered respectable and high quality ended up seeing an enormous change in their traffic from search. And when that's how you've based your entire mode of operations for years, it's incredibly disruptive. Uh, it's also one of the reasons why people who have been in content creation for a very long time stress the importance that you don't put all of your eggs in one basket, right? Like you don't put everything that you work on and 
have it depend upon YouTube. Because if you did, and Google changes the YouTube algorithm and stops suggesting your videos to people who are interested in stuff that you cover, well, then suddenly you, your videos just aren't getting views anymore. Your traffic just dies. This has happened time and time again. In fact, it happens almost cyclically. So this was kind of a big reminder here, the, the Google search changes. That was a big reminder that depending upon a different party and their performance to make your business work is incredibly risky. Because if that other party goes out of business or changes the way it does things, that has a direct impact on you. Uh, it's crazy to me how many businesses went through that and did not appear to learn from that lesson. But anyway, okay, we've got a little bit more to say about content farms and uh, then clickbait. But before I get into all that, let's take another quick break. All right, so Google makes these changes to its search algorithm, and immediately there's an enormous impact. Uh, traffic to sites like Content Farms dropped dramatically. For one uh, company that was known for making Content Farms, also sometimes called Content Mills, uh, they saw a 40% drop in traffic across all their sites. Pretty, pretty dramatic. Uh, most people just weren't navigating to sites like eHow and browsing. I mean, again, like it showed that the sites were not destinations on their own. Nobody was typing in eHow.com and going to it. They were finding th stuff through search. And when search stopped suggesting it, the traffic really died out. So a lot of those sites ended up shutting down. Uh, not eHow. That one stuck around. But again, their traffic was hurt pretty badly. Now, you don't hear quite as much about content farms these days, though you could argue they still exist. They just evolved. Um, but you do hear about clickbait. That term originated from a blog post written by a guy named Jay Geiger back in 2006. And the name pretty much tells you everything you need to know about what clickbait is. It's something that you see that tempts you to click on it. It lures you in like bait does on a, on a hook. Now, maybe that clickbait comes in the form of a provocative thumbnail for a YouTube video, uh, usually coupled with a, an equally provocative title. Maybe it's just an outlandish headline for a news article. Uh, maybe it appears to answer a question that you could have sworn has no answer. And the concept of clickbait is, of course, way, way older than the internet. The same basic idea was used more than a century ago when various newspapers, most of which were having uh, some sort of dubious reputation, would rely upon sensationalized headlines in order to sell papers. Uh, so this was the era of yellow journalism. And of course, back then, the goal was to convince people to hand over some of their money to buy a paper. But the basics remain the same. You use tried and true methods to convince folks to take an action, even if that action, in this case, is just clicking through a link. This typically involves appealing to some pretty basic human traits. Uh, frequently, I see clickbait used in the context of a sort of bait and switch. That being, it's a thing that lures you in, and it turns out that the thing that lured you in isn't actually present in the thing you really encounter. 
golly, I've seen bait and switches a lot these days. In fact, they pop up in my uh, Google alerts, which is really frustrating. I've got an Android phone and I get little notifications about stuff that I might be interested in. Those of you who have listened to Large Nerdron Collider know that I do a podcast about geeky pop culture stuff. So I get a lot of geeky pop culture headlines that pop up, including a ton that try to push me towards sites that aren't actually news sites. Uh, There's one in particular that's a YouTube channel that supposedly has trailers for stuff well before anyone else does, except they're not real trailers. They're fake trailers. Uh, They're trailers that are cobbled together from footage from other stuff and presented as if it's a legit trailer for some either upcoming or even unannounced project. Uh, And that's popping up in my notifications. That's definitely a bait and switch. I've also seen things where people have kind of taken a clickbait approach to stuff like ASMR videos. Now, I've been watching ASMR videos for a really long time. Longtime listeners will remember I once interviewed uh, ASMR artist Heather Feather, who hasn't been active in a few years, but was one of the pioneers, really, in the ASMR field back in the day. Well, a lot of those videos now have thumbnails that are meant to be extremely provocative in some way or another, uh, some of which are kind of sexualized, some of which appear to suggest violence. It's kind of crazy when you think that ASMR is really supposed to be about like relaxing and and chilling out. <laughs> and I see these videos, and I'm like, this, this doesn't seem to be sending the message of chilling out to me, but whatever. Anyway, a lot of that just means that these artists are following what are seen to be best practices. They are the way to get people to click. So it's not necessarily that they want to do this, or at least not that they, you know, set out to do this, but rather this is one of the ways where you stand out and you get people to click on your work and hopefully enjoy it, even though the work may not uh, be reflective of whatever you use to lure them in the first place. That's the danger, right? If you feel that the thing you are served is not the same thing you were promised, you're likely to be a little upset. Uh, But I get it. You know, traffic amounts to revenue. So you got to get folks in the door. And the internet is a vast treasure trove of content. Some of that content is good or even really good. A lot of it's mediocre. And some of it is really bad and it can be stuck. It can be really tough to stand out, even if you are putting out great, great content. So you got to use all the tricks you can. Uh, It's something I've never been particularly good at. Now, there are a few other related things we can chat about briefly that kind of fall into these content uh, buckets, whether it's content farm or clickbait. A big one of those, at least in my mind, are quizzes and galleries. You don't see That as often, there's still some sites that take the gallery approach and I hate it, but I understand why it's happening. Just like I understand why quizzes are so popular. So the reason why quizzes and galleries are beloved by content farm like entities is that they represent a potentially large number of clicks for a potentially low investment. Like let's talk about a quiz. Let's say a quiz is 20 questions long, but the way you make the quiz is that each question is its own little web page. And you choose, like, maybe it's a multiple choice answer. You choose your multiple choice answer, you hit next, and then you get the next question. 
Now, in your experience, what you're doing is you're just answering questions and getting the next one. But what's going on, you know, from a business perspective is that every single time you're answering a question, you're loading a new web page. Every time you load a new web page, that's an opportunity to serve you an ad. And every time you keep on going through those quizzes, uh, then you start ranking up those page views. It's a great way for page views to go through the roof very quickly. Uh, if you write really good quizzes, and by good I mean sticky, like people want to answer them, they'll go on and they'll start taking the next quiz after they get the first one, and they'll just keep on going, and those numbers keep on going up. So that is incredibly attractive to uh, websites that that host a lot of content. It means that they, you know, if they're getting their web advertising based on page views then that's a, a way to really drive those page views up. Same with galleries, where it would be like a slideshow, where you've got a picture, and then you hit next. Well, it's not just that it's reloading a new picture, right? You're not just getting a new photo. That's actually counting as a whole new page view. So from an advertising perspective, you just went from someone who gave one page view to two page views, and you keep clicking through, those page views goes up, go up and up. A lot of uh, of content companies out there present their articles in a slideshow approach, uh, which gets a little gross. Uh, back at How Stuff Works, we did galleries and we did quizzes toward the end of my time at How Stuff Works. Uh, not so much in the beginning. In the beginning, it was more articles. But even then, we would arrange our articles in pages. Uh, the idea being that it would get kind of intimidating if the article was all in one unbroken page because you'd just be scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, particularly for really dense topics. So we would organize our, our material by pages and we'd say, all right, well, we're going to talk about one specific thing about this, you know, in my case, technology. I'm going to dedicate a whole page to this. And then the next page will be the next part about this. And the pages were, you know, they, they were long. They weren't, it wasn't like a paragraph. Um, but we also gave the opportunity for people to use the print article feature, which wouldn't immediately send it to the printer, but it would give you the full article in one page view. And you wouldn't, you know, click next page, next page, next page. So we did give people that option. Um, but yeah, like as we started doing things like introducing quizzes and galleries, I got a little squicked out by that because I felt like it was almost like we were trying to trick page views out of folks. I mean, they were getting stuff too, like they were getting an experience as well, but it never felt like it was in the same spirit as the articles were. So I always felt uneasy about it. Anyway, that's the whole story around content farms and clickbait from that conceptual level, why they exist. Uh, they can get really exasperating when you're a user, when you're a consumer and you're just trying to find something good. Uh, they get really frustrating. Uh, there are entire... YouTube channels that are just dedicated to churning out video after video after video of crap content, sometimes misleading content. Like it'll be something that is faked, but not expressed that it's faked. So it's presented as true to the audience. I'm thinking of a lot of cooking videos actually fall into that category. Um, in fact, the how to cook channel is fantastic because the host of that channel, she takes time to go through some of the viral videos in the cooking field and talk about how 
those are misrepresenting what you can and can't do with food. Uh, it's a fantastic channel. Great for critical thinkers. So hope you enjoyed this. It was going to be a tidbit, but now I'm looking at my recording and I'm already up to like 36 minutes. So this was a longer tidbit than I thought. It just shows that I'm a chatterbox. However, we'll be back with more episodes of Tech Stuff throughout the week. Tomorrow, we should have a new news episode, and then we'll have some new episodes next week. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover on Tech Stuff, whether it's a tidbit, maybe it's a topic in tech that doesn't merit a full episode, but you're just curious about it. You want to hear my thoughts? Let me know. Or if there's some trend in technology or a specific company or a specific type of tech, anything like that that you want to know about, you can let me know that as well. The best way to get in touch with me is over on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 